0: That story of a day when God's effective will, the reins of it would cover the whole earth, that's not just the big story, that's also your story. Welcome to the Plainfield Christian Church Podcast. We hope that the message today encourages you. For additional resources to inspire you in your journey with Christ, go to plainfieldchristian.com. Enjoy today's podcast. To all who are weary, longing for comfort. To all who mourn and are hoping for rest, to all who fail, desperate for strength, to all who have questions, searching for answers, to all who sin in need of a savior, welcome. The arms of this church are wide open to you. And it is our great joy every week to bring you good news from a gentle and wise king whose name is Jesus, friend of sinners. Look me right in the eyes. The invitation to you, now and forever, no matter who you are, no matter where you have been, no matter how uncertain your future, how anxious your present, how dark your past, No matter what you have done or how often or how recently you have done it, the invitation to you is to bring all of that, to bring your whole story and to enter into the story that God is writing for the world. And that's good news. We get to hear from God today by opening his word. As we do, I know we just prayed, but could we go before the Lord together in prayer again? Oh Lord, give us eyes to see your glory, ears to hear your voice, mouths to speak your truth, and hearts to be your home. Give us hands to do your work, knees to bow before you, and feet to follow you all the days of our life. And in Jesus' name, all God's people said, Amen. If we haven't had the chance to meet yet, my name is Luke, and I get to serve as one of the ministers here at Plainfield Christian Church. We love getting to open God's Word together every week. If you've got your Bibles, crank them open with you this morning to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1 is where we are going to be. There are three fundamental ways of viewing history. Uh, The first view says that history is just Meaningless. If you paid attention in school, you might have had to read Shakespeare. You might remember that Shakespeare's Macbeth said that life is but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. Some people say that history is just meaningless, that there is no grand story. And that means then that your life, your joy and your struggles don't really mean anything in a universal sense. The second view, though, says that history is cyclical, that's what the ancient Greeks believed during the time of Jesus, that it's cyclical. We're all just kind of going in a big circle that what has happened before will eventually happen again. History repeats itself, and so then it's kind of all about karma, just kind of making the world a better place. You put good out, and eventually, hopefully, you get good back, and that's about all there is to it. That's the second view, but the third view says history's not meaningless. History's not actually cyclical. The third view says that history is an arrow, That all of this is actually moving towards something. And and that there's a reason, there's a purpose that somebody is holding on to the rudder of this ship and is steering it toward their desired end. And if that's true, that history is an arrow, then that means that your life actually matters. That, That you matter because you are part of a story. The story of the world, and that big story, that universal story, that's called a meta-narrative. That's a big word. Say that with me. Say meta-narrative. And the word meta-narrative just means big story. And the followers of Jesus, God's people, have always believed throughout all of history that history's an arrow, that we're a part of a big story, a meta-narrative, and God is steering it toward his desired end. In fact, if you were even to go back before Jesus and you were gonna ask an ancient Jew, what is the story of history? What is the meta-narrative? They would tell you the story of a kingdom. We're going to tell that story today, but before we do, we better define our terms. What in the world is a kingdom? You might know what a kingdom is, of course, but uh, the great spiritual author Dallas Willard says that your kingdom is the range of your effective will the range of your effective will. In other words, your kingdom is where you are in charge. It's where you are the boss. It's where what you say goes. We all have a kingdom. Some of you, your kingdom is bigger than others. Others of you, it's smaller. Maybe your kingdom is your house if you get to be in charge there and decide what goes and how it gets decorated. Some of you, your kingdom's not the house. Maybe your kingdom's like the garage or your car or like your office or or the, or the team that you coach. We all have a kingdom, right? Even little children, you might remember. What's some of the first words that a child learns, that, that M word? Mine, right? That's a kingdom word, the range of your effective will. We are all living a kingdom story. And, and in my kingdom, in the kingdom of Luke, we operate under a very simple org chart. Here it is. Take a look. You can see where you rank. In the kingdom of Luke, I'm on top. I'm on the throne, I am the king, and all of you simply exist to make me happy and give me what I want, congratulations. (laughs) But before you get on to me about being an egomaniac, please recognize that all of us, if left to our own devices, operate under this same org chart. You can put yourself on the throne though. The Bible would call that the kingdom of self. All of us left to our own devices. We don't actually live according to a meta-narrative. We live by a micro-narrative. All of us are naturally inclined to live a small story, the story of me, where I'm the king. And it's good to be the king. But God is inviting you into a meta-narrative, into a story that is much bigger than you. And the story begins way back in the very beginning when God created everything and then he made mankind to help him rule his creation. It says this in Genesis chapter one in the very beginning of the Bible, God says, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness so that they may, what's that word? Rule. We were made to help God rule. We were actually made to the range of God's effective will. Of course, it wasn't long before Adam and Eve, those first people, decided they didn't want to help the king, they wanted to be the kings, and they rebelled against their rule. They operated by their own little micro narratives and their own little kingdoms of self by their own org charts. And yet, even after they rebelled, God promised he wasn't done, his kingdom wasn't defeated. And so God came to a guy named Abraham and he said, hey, Abraham, I'm gonna give you a great family and I'm gonna make you a great nation. And he did, and they were the nation of Israel. And God said, you, the nation of Israel, you're gonna be special. You're gonna be different than all the nations around you. You're not gonna have a human king because I'm gonna be your king, God said. God said to the nation of Israel in Exodus chapter 19, he said, now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, I'm king over all of it, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. God's saying, Israel, you're gonna be different. I'm gonna use you to shine my light to the world because I'm gonna be your king But it wasn't long before Israel failed just like Adam and Eve did. They rejected the meta-narrative of God being king and they reverted to the micro-narratives of them being their kings of the own little kingdoms. And, And they asked God, no, we'd really like to have a human king instead. And so the human kings that they had led them to worship other gods and reject God's rules and do all kinds of other dumb stuff. And because of their sin, they had to go into exile. They were conquered by these foreign nations and yet even then God did not give up on them. He sent them prophets. You remember those crazy people we talked about last week? And God sent them prophets to remind them that one day he would be king again. He sent them people like the prophet Zechariah who said in Zechariah 14, nine, he said, the Lord will be king over the whole earth and on that day there will be one Lord and his name, the only name. He sent them people like the prophet Daniel who said in Daniel chapter two, verse 44, I'm not giving up on you. He said, someday God's gonna set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. This was the big story. This is the meta narrative. This is where all of history is headed. And so the Jews clung to the hope that they were a part of a story that was bigger than themselves, that maybe, just maybe, God would keep his promises and someday he would come and he would be the king and they would be his people. And that is the big story. But that story, of a day when God's effective will, the reins of it would cover the whole earth. That's not just the big story, that's also your story. Now let's push pause for a second right here before we go any further. Um, Why in the world does this matter? Maybe you're thinking that the story of some Ancient kingdom called Israel thousands of years ago. What in the world does that have to do with the day-to-day reality of your nitty-gritty life right here in Hendricks County, Indiana of work and family and busyness and cleaning your house and making meals and binging Netflix? What in the world does this have to do with that? It has everything to do with that. And here's why this matters. The story you believe shapes the person you become. The story you believe shapes the person you become. Let me prove my point. Um, over the last 100 years or so, I don't remember the exact year it was formed, there have been around 900 Nobel Prizes that have been awarded. You're probably familiar with the Nobel Prize. It's handed out to people who make these kind of world-famous breakthroughs in in the scientific fields like chemistry and economics and literature and peace and physics and medicine. And of the roughly 900 Nobel Prizes that have been awarded throughout history, 22% of them have gone to people who were Jewish, Now, here's why that's remarkable. Do you know how much of the world's population is Jewish? 0.2%. Less than 1% of the world's population is Jewish. So that means then that being Jewish means that you are 11,250% more likely to win a Nobel Prize. In fact, just being Jewish means that you are more likely to win a Nobel Prize than if you were to graduate from Harvard. Pretty remarkable. So why in the world is that? Why, if they're only one-fifth of one percent of the world's population, why have the Jews won twenty-two percent of the Nobel Prize is ever awarded? Of course I can't give you a straight answer, but I have a theory. You want to hear my theory? Here's my theory. No Jew has ever asked, I wonder what story I'm a part of. I wonder if my life ties into anything bigger than myself. I wonder if this means anything. I wonder if this is all just meaningless or cyclical. No Jew has ever asked that. From the moment that a Jewish baby is born, they know that they were born into a big story that they have become a part of the people of promise, that they are the children of Abraham and that God gave Abraham the covenants, that they were his special people, that they were a chosen nation, that they are a part of the story of God becoming king over everything and that he was the people that they chose and that has infused their lives with meaning and with purpose and that is the foundation that everything is built from. The story you believe shapes the person you become. For example... If the story you believe is that you are a victim, you will spend your life being defensive and either trying to prove that you are strong or keeping from being hurt. If the story you believe is that you are unlovable, then you will spend your life being self-protective never letting people know the real you, and especially hiding the messy parts from the people around you. If the story you believe is that you are destined to be the king of the mountain, then you are gonna swagger into every room you enter, you're gonna think you're God's gift to mankind, (laughs) and you're gonna use the people around you as tools to get what you want. If the story you believe is that God is angry at you and that he wants you to try harder to do better, then you're gonna spend your life spinning your wheels, wondering if you've done enough, trying harder to be a better person and you will be exhausted. The story you believe shapes the person you become. That brings us back then to Mark chapter one where we've been diving deep into the big story, the story that God is writing for the world. And we've said that the answers you give to two fundamental questions about this story will shape the person you become. The two questions we've been asking over these three weeks are, number one, who is this man? Talking about Jesus, who is this man? And question number two, what is this gospel? And so in in week one, we looked at Jesus and we said, "Who, who is this man? And Mark gives us the answer. In Mark chapter one, verse one, he says, the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the son of God, who is this man? Jesus is the Christ. He is the one true King. That's the answer. And last week we answered the second question. What is this gospel? What's the good news that King Jesus came to proclaim? And Mark answers the second question here for us in Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. Jesus says that the climax of the meta narrative, the climax of the story of history, was Him coming into the world. He says, The time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. And again, that is not only the big story, that is also your story. Because The rest of the pages of the New Testament after the ascension of Jesus, the story of the early church, reminds us that, hey, if we are followers of Jesus, then one of Jesus' friends named Peter says that actually the words God spoke to Israel that we read earlier in Exodus chapter 19, those are the same words that God speaks to you now. Peter says this in 1 Peter chapter two, verse nine. Read these closely because this is who God says you are. You are God's chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. That's who you are. Now, of course, even though, yes, we we may be God's chosen people, if we are followers of Jesus, that we're members of his kingdom right now, we know that the world is still living in rebellion against him, right? Right? That most of the people around us are not living in the kingdom of God. They're living in the kingdom of self. They're not living by the meta-narrative. They're stuck in their own little micro-narratives. And so then our call as God's people is to be the rebellion against the rebellion. If you remember, again, back to high school, you might remember history class back in when you studied the Civil War. In the Civil War, the Confederate states illegally seceded from the Union, and Tennessee was one of those states that seceded from the Union. But East Tennessee did not want to secede from the union. And so actually, East Tennessee seceded from Tennessee. They were the rebellion against the rebellion. And that's who we are. That the world around us is still living according to the kingdom of self, they're in rebellion against the king, and yet we operate as agents right now of the kingdom of heaven here on earth. If you're a follower of Jesus this morning, then Paul says this to you. He says, this is true of you right now. Colossians chapter one, he says, for he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us right now into the kingdom of the son he loves in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. You are living in the kingdom of God. Now, that's true of you at this moment, but we also know it's not yet fully true, right? We haven't experienced the kingdom of God in its fullness, And so as followers of Jesus, we are clinging to the hope that one day we will, that when King Jesus returns riding on the clouds, scripture says that on that day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We are clinging to the hope that one day when he returns, every eye will see him and everyone will acknowledge that he is King of Kings and he is Lord of Lords. And on that day, when we experience the fullness of living in God's kingdom, Jesus himself says, this is what will happen. He says, then the King will say to those on his right, come, You who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance. The kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. So right now, living in the kingdom of God as the rebellion against the rebellion means that people are gonna think you're weird. It's really practically like people are gonna think you're strange with the kind of stuff you talk about and you spend your time on and you spend your money on and they might think your kids are weird and different. In fact, they may even go a step further. They may even think you're offensive and repressive and harmful But Jesus says that on that day, we're actually gonna get to reign with God again like Adam and Eve were meant to, and like Israel was supposed to, that we are going to get to reign with him to extend the range of his effective will over all of creation, and on that day, what is true now in principle will be true then in practice, and we won't be weird anymore. Revelation chapter 11 says that on that day, heaven will shout, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. That is what all of history is headed toward. That's the story. And that's also your story. So then, if it's true that that's the story, that the kingdom of God is at hand and that we get to live into it, then we better do a little bit of a deeper dive. What is the kingdom of God? What is the kingdom of God? What what, what are we talking about here when we say this? Well, Jesus answers that question in three primary ways. First thing Jesus does is he describes the kingdom Jesus describes the kingdom. But the thing is, when Jesus describes the kingdom in the gospels, as as we read through the gospel of Mark together this year, he never gives us like a really clean PowerPoint presentation with a nice, neat three-point outline and like a nice little pithy phrase to define it really clearly for us. When Jesus describes the kingdom, he tells stories. He says, well, the kingdom's like, it's like a mustard seed, The kingdom's like a little pinch of yeast in a batch of dough. The kingdom, it's like a guy who who goes to a field and he discovers a buried treasure. It's like another guy, a guy who's rummaging around at a flea market and he discovers a pearl that's worth a million dollars. The kingdom, well, imagine a father who runs out to meet the son who's rebelled against him. Imagine a rich man who didn't care for the poor, and then he dies and goes to hell. Imagine a servant who has a great debt, and the debt is forgiven. When Jesus describes the kingdom, he tells stories. He says that's what the kingdom's like. Jesus doesn't just describe the kingdom, though. Second thing is, Jesus demonstrates the kingdom. He doesn't just tell us what the kingdom is like by his words, he also tells us with his works. In Luke chapter 11, Jesus says this. He says, if I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. In other words, as we walk through the gospel of Mark together, we're gonna see Jesus do a whole lot of miracles. And when you see Jesus do a miracle, he's not just doing a party trick. He's not just showing off. Every time Jesus does a miracle, that's actually a window into another world. It's a sneak preview of what life in his kingdom will be like. It's him saying, Hey, in the place where God reigns, he brings healing and life and freedom and hope and joy where there was only darkness and despair. Jesus describes the kingdom, he demonstrates the kingdom. But here's the third thing, and this one is the trickiest Jesus also embodies the kingdom. He embodies the kingdom. That means that he, in and of himself, kind of reenacts the story of God and his people, this kingdom. Now, we're in Mark chapter one. We've been here in the first 15 verses for three weeks together, all right? And, and you might remember what we talked about last week, that here in Mark chapter one, we saw Jesus come down to the Jordan River where he got baptized by his crazy camel hair-wearing, locust-eating cousin, wild-haired prophet guy, John the Baptist. And Jesus comes out of the water. He immediately goes into the wilderness where he fasts for 40 days and he is tempted by the devil and yet without sin and he comes out of the wilderness and then he begins to preach and say, the time has come, the kingdom of God is near, repent and believe the good news. Now, when Jesus does that, that's not all happening by accident. It's very much intentional. Jesus is actually reenacting the story of Israel right there. He's saying, hey, I am fulfilling the role that God's people were always meant to play. If you're familiar at all with your Old Testament, go back with me. You might remember that the nation of Israel started out as this family, and the family was taken to Egypt, where they ended up being slaves in Egypt for 400 years. God did the 10 plagues. He brought them out of Egypt. Do you remember how he brought them out of Egypt? Parted the waters of the Red Sea. So they come out of Egypt through the waters and then into the wilderness for 40 years. You remember that? Okay, think now to the story of Jesus. Jesus, born in Bethlehem, born in Canaan, where the story of Israel started, he also goes to Egypt for a little while to flee from Herod. He comes out of Egypt, grows up in Nazareth, and then when he starts his ministry, what's what's he do? He comes out of Egypt and he goes through the waters. He's baptized in the Jordan, it's not the Red Sea, he goes through the waters, and where does he go after he comes out of the water? He goes to the wilderness, not for 40 years like the Israelites were, but for 40 days, You might remember when the Israelites were in the wilderness for 40 years, they were hungry, they grumbled, they didn't trust God. Jesus is in the wilderness for 40 days and he's fasting. He's hungry and he's tempted not to trust God and yet he chooses to trust God. He is without sin and he comes out of the wilderness. And then you might remember when the Israelites, they get to the promised land and they kind of split up and each of the 12 tribes take their territory. When Jesus comes out of the wilderness to start his ministry, he chooses 12 disciples. Why does he choose 12 disciples? Not because 12 is a really convenient number. It's because they're symbolic of the 12 tribes of Israel. Jesus is saying, I am starting a new people. I am doing what Adam and Eve were always supposed to do. I am doing what Israel is always supposed to do. I am starting a new people in my kingdom who will follow God as king. And that's us. It's an amazing story that we get to be a part of. This is who we are. So if all of that is true, that Jesus describes the kingdom, demonstrates the kingdom, and embodies the kingdom, then the question we have to ask is, how do we live into that story? How do we live in the kingdom of God? Well, we embody the kingdom too. If you are in Christ and Christ is in you, then just like Jesus embodies the kingdom, we actually embody the kingdom too. Last week, we sent you out of here by saying, hey, heaven is closer than you think. Heaven's closer than you think. And if we really are citizens of the kingdom of heaven as followers of Jesus, then part of our calling is to pray for the kingdom of heaven to come. And just like Jesus taught his followers to pray in Matthew chapter six, you might recognize the Lord's prayer. He taught them to pray, our father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So last week we all left here saying, hey, Heaven's closer than we think, and what if we just prayed, Lord, would you make up there come down here through me? And little by little, as we pray that, God does bring heaven to earth day by day through us. And we could all tell stories. I hope you can tell stories of how God has done that in your life. We could tell stories for hours about how God has done that through history. It's happened in some really dramatic ways when people decide to live that way. One of the most moving films that I have ever seen is the movie To End All Wars. It's a violent, gruesome movie, but the story is absolutely powerful. It's based on the true story of a British army officer by the name of Ernest Gordon, who was captured by the Japanese in World War II and sent to a prisoner of war camp. And the conditions for these prisoners were absolutely horrible. They were basically forced to go out and hack their way through the jungle as slave labor to build a railroad. They were working just in loincloths in 120 degree heat, their bodies ravaged by disease and insect, their feet being torn apart by the rocks on the jungle floor. They had to work bare feet, just horrific conditions. And any time a prisoner would grow weak or fall behind, guards would just beat them to death. No questions asked right there. In fact, history tells us that in the construction of this railroad, 80,000 men were killed. 393 men killed for every mile of track. Just horrible atrocities committed. And yet, even then, the prison camp where the men were kept wasn't much better than the working on the railroad itself. Even among the prisoners, it was a really dog-eat-dog kind of environment where the only law was survival of the fittest, Men would fight each other for scraps of food. They'd often steal from the other prisoners, living according to the little micro-narratives of their head, like the kingdom of self. I got to do what's best for me, and everybody else only exists to help me survive. It was a horrible place. People just living like animals to survive. And eventually, Ernest Gordon himself, he grew really sick, and so they put him in the death house. The death house there in the camp was where prisoners who were on the verge of death were just laid out in rows to wait until they stopped breathing. Gordon only had enough energy to prop himself up on one arm, write a final letter to his parents, and then lay down and await his inevitable end. He had no hope. But then Ernest Gordon writes about how an event took place that shook the entire camp. You see, at the end of each workday, when the prisoners were coming back from working on the railroad and they got back to the camp, the Japanese guards would count all the tools that they had been using to make sure all of the tools had been returned. And, And one day, the guards were taking inventory and they discovered that a shovel was missing. And when they discovered that the shovel was missing, one of the Japanese guards, he walked up and down the ranks demanding to know who had stolen the shovel, what had happened to the shovel and nobody confessed to it and so eventually, the guard finally just screamed. He said, all die, all die and he raised his rifle to begin shooting the first man in line and just then, one prisoner stepped forward. He said, I did it. And the guard fell upon that man in a furious rage and beat him to death. The next time the guards counted the shovels, though they discovered something shocking, they were all there. No shovels were missing. The whole thing had been a mistake. It was a miscount. And as the prisoners thought back to what their comrade had done, one of the prisoners happened to remember that verse from the Bible where Jesus said in John chapter 15, greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life from one's friends. And from that one act of sacrificial love up there started to come down here. And the range of God's effective will grew just a little. Ernest Gordon writes about how attitudes in the camp began to shift after that day. The prisoners started treating each other different and started treating one another with respect. And when a prisoner would die, they started giving them proper burials and marking their graves with a cross and people stopped stealing from each other. And and Ernest Gordon himself, you remember who'd been put in the death house, a couple other prisoners came and they stole him from the death house and they moved him to a clean spot where he could rest and recover and every day they came and they dressed his wounds and they brought him food and they cleaned his latrine and one other prisoner traded his watch for some medicine that could help Ernest Gordon get better and slowly but surely, little by little, across the camp, competition gave way to sacrifice and jealousy gave way to generosity and fear gave way to hope and pride gave way to mercy and greed gave way to love the prisoners got together and they built a little tiny church building and every evening they would gather together to pray for those who were most sick and Ernest Gordon had studied philosophy before the war and so some of the other prisoners got together and they asked Ernest Gordon to start a discussion group about ethics and about how to prepare for death. That was the most compelling question in the whole camp and that discussion group got so popular and it grew so large that eventually a little jungle university started to form and and prisoners who had expertise in certain areas volunteered to teach other prisoners what they knew and eventually their jungle university grew until they were offering full-scale classes in economics and mathematics Mathematics and natural sciences and history and nine different languages. And professors would, they'd all write their own textbooks on whatever little scraps of paper they could find. And, and some prisoners were inspired by this and they managed to go get together some scraps of charcoal from some cooking fires and ground them up and make paints. And they made enough paintings that they could put on an art exhibition. And some other prisoners managed to somehow smuggle in some musical instruments and others managed to carve some woodwinds out of bamboo and they formed a jungle orchestra. <laughs> And one guy who had a photographic memory could compose out entire scores of Beethoven's symphonies and soon the the, the prison camp was performing concerts and ballets and other theater productions and these men were so changed by that one act of sacrificial love that turned the tide that eventually later on in the war when the camp was finally liberated by the Allies, instead of enacting revenge on their vicious captors, the prisoners ended up treating them with kindness and with mercy and forgiveness. And Ernest Gordon himself, he had abandoned the faith long ago. But after he experienced the taste of that heavenly love in a prisoner of war camp, after the war, he went home and he enrolled in seminary and he became a minister. And in the 1940s in Thailand, in a prisoner of war camp, Two worlds existed side by side right next to each other, darkness and light, heaven and earth overlapping. And through one act of sacrificial love, one man being willing to step out of the kingdom of self and into the kingdom of God up there came down here. It's a pretty cool story, right? But most of us aren't gonna be in a prison camp anytime soon. (laughs) So how do we live in the kingdom of God now. Well, it doesn't start by saying you got to try harder to do better. It starts by realizing that heaven has already invaded earth in the person of Jesus Christ and that he is living in you if you are a follower of him, wanting to bring heaven to earth through you in your normal everyday life and the things you're already doing with the people you're already with. I love that when Jesus describes the kingdom in those stories that he tells, most of the time, they're not these big, crazy, dramatic events. Most of the time, Jesus describes the kingdom in everyday stories. He says, it's like a woman baking some bread. It's like a a guy going fishing. It's like a farmer sowing seed. It's like a merchant buying some jewelry. Jesus wants to bring heaven to earth through you in the normal, little, everyday things you're already doing. In the Bible, Hebrews chapter 12 says this. It says, therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful. And so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. Now, do you actually believe that? You're actually believing that, that we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. If you believe that story, that if you're a follower of Jesus, you are a citizen of an unshakable kingdom, then think about how that changes how you live when your kid or your grandkid or a student smarts off to you, if you are living the story of the kingdom of self, you can squash them because you just don't have time to deal with it right now. But if you are living into the story of the unshakable kingdom of God, then you can give them the same patience and grace that Jesus has given you. And up there comes down here. If your boss works you like a rented mule and treats you like dirt. (laughs) If you're living the story of the kingdom of self, you can cut corners and slack off and gripe to your coworkers because you don't deserve to be treated like that. But if you are living into the story of the unshakable kingdom of God, then you can work for them like you're working for King Jesus and show them the humility of heaven and up there comes down here if you have a chunk of money. If you're living according to the kingdom of self, do whatever you want with it. It's yours, go blow it on whatever makes you happy. But if you are living into the story of the unshakable kingdom of God, then you realize that every good thing comes from and belongs to the king. And it is our call as citizens of his kingdom to live lives of sacrificial generosity to bring his kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. If you are a follower of King Jesus, that means that every time you choose to love, every time you choose to include someone who's lonely, every time you choose to encourage someone who's discouraged, every time you challenge someone who's wandering off the path, every time you worship God with your whole heart, every time you exhibit courage or humility or gentleness or generosity or faithfulness or joy in the name of Jesus, up there comes down here and the kingdom of heaven has come near. And so the invitation for you is to step into the unshakable kingdom of God led by a gentle and wise king. Jesus says that this good news demands a response. He says, the kingdom of heaven has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Uh, Some of you have never done that for the first time, that, that you need to turn away from the kingdom of self, get out of your micro narrative and step into the big story of what God's doing and say, Jesus, I need you to be my king. And if that's you, if you have never reenacted and embodied that story yourself by going down into the waters and coming up out of the waters and becoming a part of God's kingdom, you need to do that. And we can do that today. There's gonna be a prayer team gathered around the edges of the room. They always are at the end of every service. They've got their green lanyards on. If you need to make that decision, do it. You can go to the baptism tab on the website too if you want to. But even if you're already in the kingdom, but you're saying, you know what, man, I've just, there's some other stories playing in my head that I've been believing and I just need to recenter myself on Jesus or I've, I've just got some stuff going on and I need you to show me, show me how Jesus speaks into this. We would love to talk with you. We'd love to pray over you and the prayer team's there for you as well. And for us together, um, we do this every week to remind ourselves of the story that we are a part of, a story that is much bigger than you and me Jesus says that the meta-narrative, the story of God becoming king, at the very center of that story stands a cross that of all things, Jesus was enthroned on a cross with a crown of thorns. What kind of king is this? But his body, represented by this bread, was nailed to that cross to take the punishment for our rebellion against him. And his blood that poured down his face when they jammed that crown of thorns on his head, that spilled from his side when they pierced it with the spear, that poured from his shredded back when he was flogged. That blood, scripture says, is what washes us clean. And so I'm gonna give you a moment to receive this bread on your own and to tell him thank you again. And then I wanna pray over you and we'll receive the juice together. If you're able, before I pray, um, while you're holding this cup, if you're able, would you put your hands out open on your lap in front of you as a posture of openness to Jesus? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven you see all of us who are weary, all who are angry, all who are tired and confused, all who are searching, all whose hearts are hard in rebellion against you, all whose hearts are melting in grief and loss. You know our fears You know our hopes. So we lay them all before you to say thank you for inviting us into your unshakable kingdom, to say that you are a good and wise and gracious king. We praise you for dying on the cross and rising from the dead so that you could be exalted over everything as king of kings and lord of lords. And we lay our lives before you, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And we ask you to take our fickle faith and our feeble days and to somehow use them to bring up there down here. We love you. It's in Jesus' name that all God's people said, amen. This is the blood of Christ. Like we just read, the author of Hebrews says that because we've received a kingdom that cannot be shaken, Therefore, worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. That's what we're gonna do together. Let's stand and worship our King.